The opening bars of the first of two pieces that we're going to be exploring in the workshop today, both of which are tribute pieces, that Peter Warlock's Serenade, which is a birthday present for his friend and mentor, Frederick Delius, on the occasion of his 60th birthday. And the other piece that we'll explore is Richard Wagner's exquisite love poem, Siegfried Idyll, written as a celebration in honour of uh, his wife Cosima's birthday, her 33rd birthday, and also to celebrate the safe and wonderful birth of their son, Siegfried. We'll get into that a little bit later on, but first, Peter Warlock, a very interesting character, ladies and gentlemen, in the history of British music. This was a man who worked under a variety of different names, and he was really faddish about the use of these names. His born name, Philip Heseltine, was the name he used as a celebrated musicologist and transcriber. He worked a great deal with music of the 16th and 17th century, transcribing vile music by Purcell in particular. But he was also very celebrated as a critic, working under a variety of other pseudonyms. And then added to all of that, he was also, of course, an extremely successful composer. Very well known, and in a way it's remarkable that his name, this is Peter Warlock we're talking about now, has lived on for so long, given that really the bulk of his writing was simply songs. He only wrote three orchestral pieces, of which the serenade we're looking at today is one. He was a troubled man, I think today, or in, in today's terms, we would term him a manic depressive. He seemed to have two very distinct personalities, and maybe the fact that he worked under all these different names was, is a clue to that, that he veered from a kind of extrovert, heavy-drinking jocularity through to a very neurotic kind of introspection. He eventually took his own life in 1930. Now, let's think about Frederick Delius for a second. Interesting man, par excellence, the composer-poet about regret for time past and the transience of human love. He was a totally rhapsodic composer who abjured all kind of sonata form, the classical procedures, the basic architecture, the structure of which most music was. He was very much a Wagner disciple. He was very much part of that kind of chromatic world. And uh, because of his hatred of sonata form and classical structures and this rhapsodic nature he had, it took him a very great deal of time to say anything at all in musical terms. And Warlock, perhaps slightly pointedly, wrote this tribute to him in order to show him how one might make a piece of music succinctly. The serenade only lasts for six minutes. It's the first of what would, would have been a three-movement work, but Warlock, perhaps due to his intense depression at this time, never got round to the other two movements. It sets out two basic ideas which relate to each other and then subjects them to a certain amount of kind of contrapuntal technique, which is more Warlock's fascination, given that he'd been looking at the music of Henry Purcell all these years. Let's just play the opening theme to you now. Let's listen now to how that theme is developed. Slightly different colour of harmony underneath is all it takes just to give it a completely different hue. In a Delius piece, this might have been quite some minutes in. In Wallach's case, it's only after a minute or so.
Now we present to you the second subject, as it were, but as you'll hear instantly, this music relates very closely to the first subject. It's only really a kind of variation on it. stop there and then immediately start again in a second to show you now how he takes that theme, the B theme we should call it, and immediately inverts it in what the violas and the basses have. Again, something that Delius probably wouldn't have done. Delius was not a contrapuntalist of any sort. He was a texture man. So we wonder if Warlock was trying to tell him something here. Now, that B theme is now further developed. Again, the harmony shifts and slightly changes underneath it, and there are more layers of texture to it now. Again, perhaps not something Delius would do. So, a tribute, yes, a pastiche, perhaps, because the overall colour and tone of the piece feels quite Delius-like, but perhaps also a little knock on the door of his by now 60-year-old mentor, as if to say, actually, look what I can do, and look what you could potentially do as well, if you were me. Ladies and gentlemen, there is an almost unbearably beautiful love story surrounding the composition and first performance of Richard Wagner's Siegfried Idyll. He was, or had been for a long time, in love with Cosima, who was one of the illegitimate daughters of Liszt. The problem was that Cosima was married to a celebrated conductor of the second half of the 19th century, Hans von Bulau, and while she was still living with him under his roof, he was carrying on a very open affair with Richard Wagner. And indeed, she gave birth to a couple of daughters whilst she was still married to Hans von Bulau, who were very definitely Wagner's and not von Bulau's. And it's incredible, really, one of those extraordinary stories that Bulau and Wagner managed to remain such close friends, as von Bulau later said, that if it had been any other man, he would have shot him. <laughs> but not the case of Richard Wagner. And uh, finally, the divorce papers came through in 1870, and this was just after... Siegfried, Richard and Cosima's son, had been born in late 1869. They were installed in a villa on Lake Lucerne, which they called Triebschen. And it was there that Wagner decided to surprise Cosima with the most perfect birthday present imaginable. 
basically what he did was compose this piece in absolute secret. He got help from his friend, the Austro-Hungarian conductor Hans Richter, to rehearse a small orchestra. Richter himself learnt the trumpet specially for this piece. There's only 13 bars of it, and by all accounts, he had to row out to the middle of the lake in order to practice so as to escape detection. Anyhow, when it came to her birthday, which happily enough was on Christmas Day, Richard Wagner put his small orchestra up the stairs of their house while Cosima was still asleep. And as she said, and I quote directly, as I awoke, I heard a sound which grew fuller and fuller. I couldn't tell myself I was still dreaming. Music was sounding, and what music? As the strains of the music died away, Richard came into the bedroom with our children and presented me with a score of this symphonic birthday offering. I was in tears, but then so was the whole household. Richard had placed his tiny orchestra on the stairs, and thus was our Triebchen consecrated forever. So you can see emotions were running very high when Wagner wrote this piece, and indeed when it was first performed. Now, there are essentially four themes in this work, and it's been a subject of much discussion, particularly the first theme, because it also occurs in Siegfried, that part of the ring cycle. It's the great love duet between Siegfried and Brunhilde in Act 3. Let me show you the first idea, which is in the violas. Listen carefully, because much of the information that we need for the, an understanding of the whole piece is contained in these first three bars. Now listen to that in the context of the other instruments, particularly listen to what the first violins have above it. Those last two bars that the first violin had there, that figure is used extensively. It's kind of an adjunct to this first theme. And like I say, you find it very, very extensively in that great love duet between Siegfried and Brunhilde. Here, of course, it's a love duet, if you like, between Wagner himself and his beloved Cosima. Now, I'm going to play on the next bit of that and listen to how the key starts to move. We start to move towards the dominant. again.
leave you lingering on that chord there. That is, of course, a dominant 13th, the great chord in Wagner. And indeed, Puccini, which creates all sorts of tension and excitement. You notice that a strong part of that opening material was the use of a triplet figure. Di, da, di, da, 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 da. That then gets taken out and used as a motif in its own right. So that brings that triplet idea into a kind of sharp focus and he uses that again and again as a motif all the way through the piece. Let me put it with the other instruments. Now listen to this chromatic line in the violins. that simmering chromaticism you get as the violas fall away down that line. That's where Mahler learned his trade. That's where Schoenberg learned his trade. In a way, through creating music of this sort, Wagner is only really taking chromaticism and, in a sense, tonality to its ultimate limits. Now, listen to this figure that then takes up as an element based on the opening material, and it gradually works higher and higher through the orchestra. Wagner's love for Cosima knows no bounds. It will climb up into the stratosphere. Let me put that in context. Violin's turn. Now, time to introduce the second theme proper. This is actually has its origins in a German folk song. It's very much a lullaby theme. It sounds for all the world like sort of little German toy soldiers. It comes in the oboe. And that's accompanied by the most delicate, little brittle string writing. I'll show you what I mean. Mm -hmm. 
And that is repeatedly used throughout the piece. And indeed, there was talk at the time, I think he said at the time, that he was thinking about reworking this piece into a full symphonic work. It is, as it stands, still a symphonic musical poem. Now, I'm going to show you the horns, what they have immediately after here. It's more of that triplet figure, but it starts to break down into a slightly syncopated rhythm, which gives a kind of rhythmic edginess. We can't get too sweet and soupy quite yet. Slightly ominous sound there, just adding some extra colour. Now, at this point, the cellos take up the material that the viola had right at the very start of the piece. Listen to the cellos on their own. Now, I'm going to put that in context with the whole orchestra, and you'll hear how that material is there, and then the toy soldier theme, as it were, the German folk theme, comes in over the top as a counterpoint to it. Now that toy soldier theme I keep talking about, it then gets inverted, i.e. turned sort of upside down in what the violins have. Then they have that same theme again, which is somewhat decorated at the end. by which time the lower strings have taken up the triplet figure underneath. So he's constantly reworking different ingredients in a a multitude of different ways. More of the triplets. The horns are trying to drag the strings to a new key. Notch up a semitone. Nice B flat major seven chord. Bit of amazing filigree work. And here comes the third theme, which you hear very clearly etched out in the woodwinds. We're now in A-flat major, which is a heck of a long way to have come from the initial E major.
Now let's try that with all the winds playing. You get a sense of contrary motion. While the clarinet line's going up, the harmony is going essentially down. Now, new material, the fourth and final theme that Wagner is giving to us. And it's a theme, I say the fourth theme, it's largely made out of, of fourths. So you need to listen very carefully to what the first tone has, using these fourths, because they become another very strong leitmotif through the remainder of the piece. I should say that this horn theme in the opera Siegfried and Goethe Demerung is associated with Siegfried's heroism and his understanding. And here in the Idyll, could Wagner be suggesting or indicating perhaps his hopes for his own infant Siegfried? And accompanying Siegfried's theme, there's a snatch of the music given in the opera Siegfried to the wood dove, who's the character who gives Siegfried his understanding. You hear it in the clarinet and then the flute. And finally, we get to a glorious kind of coming together of all these four pieces of material, all these four light motifs, if you like. And let me show you them in turn, and then how you'll hear how they all actually fit together. First of all, the oboe and clarinet, the very first theme. Now, the cello and bass have a variant on the toy soldier theme. A variant, I say, because it's actually stretched out. But there it is, nonetheless. Sounds rather different from the character it had before, but there it is. And then the third theme is in the trumpet, and it's based on that easily moving theme, that theme we heard in the clarinet. You remember this was originally played by Hans Richter, the celebrated Austro-Hungarian conductor, who learned the instrument specially for the 13 bars of it required in this piece. Hans Richter, of course, the person who conducted the world premiere performance of Wagner's Ring Cycle.
And finally, the bassoon. Another variant on the fourth theme. Now, let's put all that together. A glorious apotheosis, you could say. Now we get into a kind of coda or recapitulation, which would be the strict thing in sonata form. All the ideas are now gently discussed again as we lead forward to the end. Now that lively Götterdämmerung journey theme that we heard in the horn is here once again in the horn, and you get the wood dub interjections as well, but now it's over the most lush bed, a kind of moist moss bed of harmony shimmering in the strings. So the piece comes to the most incredible, hushed, elated conclusion. Any questions? Gentleman at the front. Uh, did Wagner have a smaller orchestra than this, or did the uh, Villa Trubchen just have an enormous staircase? <laughs> a sort of baronial staircase. Now, I think the staircase was of average proportions. History doesn't quite relate, but I believe that there were two first violins, two second violins, a viola, a cello, and a bass. It numbered about 15 or 16 in all, the orchestra. It's a wonderful text which accompanies the piece itself, which I wanted to read to you. This is the poem that Wagner wrote by way of description of the piece, I suppose, not that it needs any. Um, it's in a rather pearly translation here by one H.N. Bantock, who is the wife of the English composer Granville Bantock, for what that's worth. Thy noble sacrifice, thy fearless faith divine, found sanctuary for this work of mine. Tis thou who lovelit calm on me bestows, wherein the wondrous hero world in spirit grows, shining with magic beauty like a star, born in some ancient home of heaven afar. Sudden upon my ears a joyous message came, a son is thine, Siegfried shall be his name. And now for both my loved ones happy songs awake, my soul in music as thy love gift take. 
the joy of memory in secret shrine enclose, soft as the folded sweetness of a rose. Reveal thy grace, let friendships watch above. Siegfried, our son, the guerdon of our love, and all the faithful hearts in steadfast band, the message of this song will understand.